0: I am joined by Bob Elliott and Andy Constan. Uh, Andy is of Damp Spring Advisors. Bob Elliott is of Unlimited Funds. Both of them uh, used to know each other when they worked at uh, Bridgewater. And they had an interesting exchange on Twitter about the soft landing, whether it's actually going to happen. So I'm so glad that we're here to get this. It's kind of a you know a mock debate. We are here to talk about the soft landing, the no landing. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Welcome.
1: Hey, thanks, Jack. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's exciting to uh, do one of these with Andy,
0: Bob. You've been a proponent of uh, the soft landing, uh, a theory that was under some ridicule uh, maybe nine months ago. Uh, people were, were laughing at it. It's not possible. We're going to have a hard landing. No one's laughing now. That seems to be the base case that is uh, from many analysts, and you know, so you've been proven right by the the economic uh, uh, data. So, a soft landing. My quick definition is uh, one where the economy remains resilient. Economic growth is is robust as inflation falls. Why were you? Why did you have a, a level of confidence that a soft landing was going to occur? And, and you know, what have you made of uh, the recent economic data that supports your view?
1: Cycles are typically quite slow moving, particularly I'd say traditional economic cycles. You know, most of us remember 2020 and 2008, and those cycles were you know, acute crisis dynamics. But if you get away from acute crisis dynamics and look at more traditional cycles, you know, even as recently as the 2000 cycle, it takes a while for these things to play out. And so we were having this combination of dynamics, like important to remember a year ago, quantitative easing was happening and interest rates were at zero. So like, we're not that far into the cycle, particularly in the context of, uniquely extreme monetary stimulation coming right into into the tightening. And so for a while, basically, I was looking at the economy and saying, yes, there's been tightening. Yes, there's been a bit of moderation in the economy. But from an economic growth perspective, the economy, there's good reasons to think that it's going to be more resilient than you might initially assume, given the liquidity and the terming out of debt and the low interest rate sensitivity. And so we could have an economic expansion that kind of continues along, isn't as interrupted, not immediately interrupted by the uh, by the monetary stimulation. And then that was paired with, frankly, a period of time on the inflation side where we went from elevated inflation driven by supply chain shocks to a period where we got uh, weaker inflation. Uh, As those shocks got ameliorated, we're kind of transitioning through that. And so we had a period of time, which is what I'd call transitory Goldilocks, which is, you know, growth was decent. It it still is decent. And all the readings sort of point in that direction. And it looked like inflation was moderating um, for for a while there and and did moderate from peak. But now the question is basically, are we going to continue this Goldilocks period uh, or are we transitioning to hotter than desirable uh, on a forward-looking basis, and that's kind of where we're at in in the cycle. So, there's the reasons for the soft landing. Uh, you know, Andy,
0: you wrote on on Twitter that you think no soft landing, uh, either a hard landing or higher for longer, followed by a, a hard landing. And then you say on Twitter, no chance that Bob thinks that an actual soft landing will occur. So, what what led you to, s- to say this, and when you say you know, Bob thinks there's no chance of a soft soft landing. What, what do you mean?
2: I think those are the likely paths and a soft landing is always a possibility. Um, they can happen. Um, I think the odds of them happening are very low. Um, and I think that, um, you know, what Bob just described is, you know, pretty much what I would think would be the expected path. Um, I was a little bit more optimistic about inflation at reigniting um, due to, uh, for a, a couple of factors, and so it was really residing on higher for longer island. Um, but I, you know, anytime you approach a landing, when the economy is, the you know, torrid nominal growth is turning into less, less hot, but still warm nominal growth, you know, the land, the landing the runway is in sight um the problem is once you uh, and and i think that's really what bob was saying with the transitory goldilocks before you land there's a decision point that you have to make which is am i going to go for this landing or am i going to peel away and um you know stay higher for longer um but on the way there's a fair likelihood that people think it's going to land softly you know we can hope um, now, when I just look back at the last couple of months, you know, my basic view has been uh, all three are possibilities. Uh, a a um, an imminent recession is a possibility. A uh, soft landing is a possibility, and a um, higher or for longer is a possibility. And for me, over the course of the last few months, I would say my odds of higher or for longer have shifted. Were always higher than the market, and have shifted to yeah. I think that's more likely than the other outcomes. But the one thing I was sure is I didn't know whether we were going to soft landing or hard land. Sorry, hard landing or no landing. Um, but I was fairly confident and remained fairly confident that um, while the hard landing is one side of the coin. The higher or for longer followed by a hard landing is the other side of the coin. Um, the edge of the coin, flipping the coin and having it land on its edge is roughly what I think of for the soft landing. And I have lots of reasons for that, which we can go into.
0: It's uh, really interesting. So, uh, edge of the coin, that, that doesn't happen if you flip a coin that much and it Anywhere, yes. Uh, okay, so, so you know, just for our audience, um, yeah, hard landing is growth and inflation falls sharply. Soft landing is inflation falls while, while growth, um, you know, is r- r- uh, robust.
2: I don't know about robust, by the way. I would. Yeah, call well,
0: you know, two percent, not not real growth is is not zero. It's not a recession. Right. Uh, and then higher for longer is where you know inflation you know, uh, reaccelerates and and you know growth are are very high as well. And I think the extreme version of these the higher for longer situation, which uh, you know, Andy, you've been calling for a long time. Higher er for longer er is now. You know, the term people throwing around is uh, no landing, which 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 I like a lot. Um, so so Bob, I think Andy's uh, some, Andy's um, claim of how he sees your view is that you don't ultimately think a soft landing will happen. You have thought and have proven to be correct that the economic data. And the price action in the short term confirms this transitory Goldilocks. But as the word transitory suggests, it, uh, it, it is not going to be here forever. And a landing implies some sort of finality, as in this economic cycle will end and lead to a new cycle without there being a recession. So Andy's sort of claim, uh, as he sees your views, is that you don't actually think a soft landing Will occur at the at the end of this when you know when the when the this, the final chapter of this economic cycle you don't think a soft landing will happen is is that accurate as as you see it?
1: Well, I think that the basic question that the Fed is facing is that inflation's too high relative to their target, right? And the and I I think there was a period of time when we thought that what was driving that inflation was in fact transitory; it was something that um, And I don't mean short-term transitory, which the Fed got wrong. I mean just like in general transitory over the course of a couple of years and that it wouldn't seep into the rest of the economy, right? And basically through a combination of like the reality of the lead lags and cause-effect relationships plus the fact that the Fed frankly kept the foot on the gas for a little too long meant that we have seen like unambiguously – inflation has permeated a much broader set of the economy than just the areas, you know, acutely affected by supply chain shocks. And that's basically what we're seeing is a bit of a, you know, we had inflation that was too high, uh, and that was elevated because of supply chain shocks. And then we saw what looked like disinflation, a meaningful disinflation. But that was because a lot of the supply chain shocks were being resolved. And actually, what we're getting and we're just we're sort of transitioning towards is inflation coming back towards what is more the sort of underlying structural inflation. And that dynamic is, you know, that dynamic is an inflation that is elevated. It's not 8%. It's not 10%. It's not a disaster. It's just, you know, four, five ish percent, you know, in that ballpark in a way that is undesirable for the Fed to continue to to have, and so when you have those circumstances, at some level, there's, there's only one solution to that, to that outcome, which is you have to have a loosening, a substantial loosening of the labor market in order to get wage growth down, spending growth down, and the pressure on inflation to come down. And so there, that is essentially the hard landing that everyone expects. And so the question is basically, how much does the Fed have to do to eventually? I, I should say. I think we've answered the question: Is inflation, uh, you know, is inflation uh, in the economy broader than the supply chain shocks or not? That was an ambiguous question. I think we've sort we've pretty much answered that in my mind. And then the question becomes: How do we resolve that? And the, and and that's really the open question, which is how much tightening has to occur in order to get that done. And that's where that split of like: Are we going higher for longer? or are we already there is a real question. And certainly the data indicates that we need more rather than less. Uh, Certainly if you look at the last uh, couple of releases, it certainly looks like we need more rather than less in order to get to that point.
0: Okay, so Bob, you said a lot of very interesting things I I wanna get into. I I don't know if you provided an, an answer on when it's 2025 or 2026, And uh, people in the markets, economists look back at 2023 at this current cycle. Will they say, "Oh yeah, we had a soft landing," or will they say, "Yeah, we temporarily it appeared that you know we had a little bit of a reacceleration in in growth, but uh, the hard landing happened." Either because the hard landing happened, or because the Fed had to raise higher. Sort of, yeah. What's your final view? Taking out the time horizons, which Uh,
1: there will uh, be a hard landing, like that. Like there will be a recession. There will be a hard landing the question is kind of when and how much does it take to get there that's the that's the open that's the real open question and i think that question is very is it, i i share andy's thoughts on it which is it's very uncertain about what the answer to that question is and and that's why you know in a lot of ways right now what we have to do is we have to like feel the data as it comes in see you know is it you know are we turning are we not turning because you know, there's so much ambiguity having not been through a traditional cycle like this to understand all the sensitivities. You know, it's been 23 years or something like that since we started off a cycle like this. And so we don't really know all those sensitivities. It looks like the economy can absorb more rates than certainly people expect at the beginning, right? Um, but, you know, we're still feeling it out day to day. And, you know, we should be as data dependent uh, or more data dependent than what the Fed is in terms of getting a sense as to what that's, you know, what's actually happening and has there been enough yet done.
0: Right. So, yeah. So now let's get into the economic data. Andy, what what do you make of inflation where, you know, I think year over year it was 6.5%. Uh, month over month to 0.5, percent but then people strip out energy and housing. Then people uh, <laughs> energy and food. Then people strip out housing. Then people say, "Oh, actually, you should do it on a, a three-month annualized basis." And there's so many different, you know, whatever your conclusion is, you can find a data point that that supports it. So, what do you make of the yeah underlying nature of of inflation in the economy, which is so relevant both to growth, but but also that the Federal Reserve's hiking path going forward?
2: So, what I learned from the number on uh, on Tuesday was. Pretty much what i already expected which is that um as bob described the path of inflation there remains structural reasons for inflation to ma- remain well above target for a fairly long time and to me i'm um, looking at a combination of the strength in the labor market and the uh, ample um Money and credit in the system, which has not been uh, removed adequately, b- hardly at all, frankly, by quantitative tightening, and I look at that as you know the, tin- the the kindling that could be ignited at any point in time to fuel consumption or real in- real or financial asset investment or. Um, or uh, or real real uh, economy investment by the corporations that have saved all this money that came from the stimulus. and to me, you know, unless the Fed um, reduces its balance sheet meaningfully um, and, and um, withdraws some of that savings from the uh, money system and... Um, wages uh, and jobs weaken, and they're only going to weaken with stocks down a significant amount. Um, our ex-colleagues at Bridgewater described um, a to, to lower the employment rate, sorry, to increase the unemployment rate by 100 basis points, you need um, corporate profits to fall 10 to 20%, and they're not doing that. So there's still very ample reasoned for for, um, demand-driven inflation, Um, and, you know, that's the big picture. Now, what I would say is that a couple of weak prints associated with supply chain and energy in the first, um, um, the end of uh, 2022, you know, that was, I think, fairly expected, but I think people really overplayed that hand in terms of thinking inflation was over. And so now I think we're just back in the place where you have these, you know, enormous forces of very low unemployment and high liquidity um, that are uh, that need to be removed for inflation to really come in.
0: Hmm. Just so those, those forces of the labor market, as well as uh, ample liquidity, want to get into those. But yeah, just want to, Bob, I want to give you a chance to share your thoughts on yesterday's inflation reading, as well as the retail sales figure uh, that came out today, which showed that um, for the month of, of January, on a seasonally adjusted basis, retail sales advanced 3%, which is huge. Uh, but as you write, uh, you know the actual uh, sales declined something like 18%, but that's just a, a lower decline than normal. So they seasonally adjusted and you get 3%. So I don't even know what to think of economic data anymore.
1: Bob? Well, I, I think that the most important thing when you're thinking about the macro economy is that outside of, let's call it crisis type dynamics, like 08 and uh, 2020, the economy is like an enormous tanker ship, right? And to go, either to go faster or slower, it, like, it takes a long, long time. And you can almost think about the Fed like throwing an anchor off the back of that and slowly but surely – hoping that it slows the tanker ship down. And so um, I think a lot of people on particularly, you know, in the media or financial Twitter and things like that are trying to find the the piece of information that shows that there's a big change. And the answer is, like, more likely than not, when you see outlier outcomes in the data, they're more likely false, false signals rather than good signals. And so I think you can you know, you can look at it. And what I basically say is that the economy doesn't look like it slowed down nearly as much as would have been indicated. If you had looked at the last couple months of data, whether it was retail sales or production or things like that, it also almost certainly didn't accelerate in the way in January, the way that the employment report or, or retail sales um, look. Uh, And so, you know, what is that? What does that add up to? Like, you know, pretty much fine growth, like that, you know, and, and not that much, not that much different than what I would have thought before those stats came out, which is like, uh, fine. The growth is fine. It's not booming. Uh, it's not collapsing. It's fine. And it's fine enough to continue to keep, uh, the asset, keep the labor markets tight continue to add enough jobs to keep labor markets tight in order to create that wage inflation in order to create the income rising and the nominal spending that's outpacing, you know, nominal or real production growth, real output growth. Um, and that that all adds up to structural, you know, elevated inflation relative to target. And so, you know, my, my main advice to folks would be to, to, not read too much into any one data point, and kind of you know smooth through what look like relatively extreme measures.
0: Right. Yeah. So, Andy, one thing that you know I follow pretty closely is you uh, know short-term rates as well as the Federal Reserve's terminal rate. So, you know, how high does the market think that the Federal Reserve can get to? And that uh, terminal rate peaked somewhere uh, shortly after November, and that had been you know sort of been falling slowly as. Uh, you know, cuts were being priced into 2023 and 2024, uh, as well as just, you know, they thought they couldn't get, get higher as inflation was coming down. Uh, and that coincided with the stock market rally. Did it cause a stock market rally? I don't know. Um, however, the uh, that trade has, has now utterly reversed, where short-term rates have uh, re-accelerated higher. The two-year Treasury yield hit something like 4.7%. I, I don't know if that's higher than it was in November. I, I should know that. Um, the terminal rate itself is definitely higher, somewhere around uh, over five point three percent as of as of today. Um, you know, so so not just it, it, it's it's at least two more hikes is coming. That's what the the, the, the uh, bond market is, is saying. Do you think the bond market has is basically have has been pricing out a hard landing, which it was pricing in?
2: I've always been leaning that higher for longer is um, the better bet, um, followed by a recession while um, recognizing that I could be wrong and that, in fact, the, the economy could you know, rapidly weaken, um, but again, not landing on its edge. Um, then there's the question of how the market's priced. And I think um, the market had um, priced um, different assets very differently. Um, so, for instance, um, I had noticed a while back now that, um, the sulfur spread, the in particular, really the level of the twenty twenty four DES twenty twenty four sulfur future suggested significant cuts. In fact, I noticed it around ninety seven twenty, which implies a Fed funds rate of between two and three quarters and three um, in um, the first quarter of twenty five and that's a that was to me um thinking that we'd already have a terminal rate that was likely to rise um a lot of cuts priced in even without a terminal rate rising it was almost it was over 200 basis points of cuts um being priced um and you know it's possible that this that the pricing of and david zervos wrote a nice note um last week about um the bimodal, potentially bimodal nature of pricing, but in that, you know, 200 is really not 200. It's like 30 um, and 30 of cuts or all the way to ZERP to zero. And the probability weighted version of that is what really is priced. And I'm sympathetic with that idea. I don't think ZERP is in our near term future, regardless of any recession um unless there is a financial uh stability question and that's more of a question of the credit markets and the banks which i think are in a completely different place than they were in 2008. so even still i don't think zerp is on the table in the deepest of deep recessions because of the potential and the reality of what we saw when when, uh the economy turned and the inflationary impact that that had, I think the Fed will be very slow to get rates lower. So the long and short of it was, I think the the short-term interest rate market had priced in um, extremely high odds of a recession, which I just didn't buy. So I shorted those um, 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 during the Fed meeting um at around that 97 plus level um, but also what's interesting is um, the equity market is not pricing a recession at all mm-hmm. um, at 4100 um, using pretty much you pick your model i happen to use one that uses um you know sort of a, a very basic heuristic that i use to that i demonstrate on twitter a lot but i you know i have dozens of models it's not really that important, the model. What's important is that um, interest rates matter to discounting future cash flows. And the higher they go, the worse it is for equities. And earnings do well when growth, nominal growth is strong and could do very well when, when wages underperform top-line growth, something that Bob and I sort of nicknamed the sweet spot from last year. Um, and so I get the idea that equity, but still, when you add all those things up, 4,100 with the long bond yield, you know, approaching 4% generates most valuations, even in soft landing. So pick your earnings, but 4,100 to me, fair value requires about 8 to 10% earnings growth in 2023. And that's not going to happen even in the, a soft landing scenario, which would show nominal inflation coming down, so less earnings boost. Or even in a higher for longer, maybe you get that for in a higher for longer scenario, but then the discount rate is going to be crushing you. So that combination of things plus what was priced in Certainly not a recession, Certain, you know, a 25% decline in earnings is not priced in, at 4100 But even the sort of soft landing case and um, higher for longer case, you know, doesn't have a lot of upside to it for me. And so, you know, the, the, the gimmicky trade um, was to be short twos and spoo's. And what that really was, was a relative asset versus conditions trade the odds of each of those various outcomes occurring, and expecting them to converge on one one island or another. And we're still a long way from the fixed income market um, pricing in um, higher for longer. Um, I sent a chart around recently. In fact, I just covered some of my SOFR Zs by buying um, d- um So for you, 23s, which are um, through September of this year, because the entire move in twos, which has been very, a big move in twos down, um, and thankfully I've made some money.
0: Down in price, up in yield, yeah.
2: Down in price, up in yield, has been due to hikes in 2020, cuts in 2023 being priced out and hikes in 2023 being priced in. So a higher terminal rate and fewer hikes. But 2024 really has had no impact at all. We're still priced 167 basis points of cuts in 2024. And that's still fairly recessionary. So the the bond market is still pricing a recession, while the equity market is still pricing, and I think richly pricing, either a soft landing or a higher for longer. And so, you know, that's what I try to do, not try to guess what what island we're actually landing on, but try to see what the markets are pricing and then um, position myself to where those odds just don't align.
0: Right. So short twos and spoo's, short the two-year treasury and then short the S&P 500, short stocks and bonds. The short, the bonds that has uh, worked well this year, Uh, shorting the stocks has not. Andy, do you think that, you know, um, would you say that the rally in stocks this year is unwarranted, given your analysis?
2: No, I think um, the transition from um very significant negative outcomes for the bond market to neutral to higher for longer outcomes um comes at the benefit of equities. like if if I was thinking of recession, you know, my trade, thinking a recession in, in early December when we started seeing that tax selling, and certainly by the late December when we the market was really down a lot, my trade would be short stocks and um, long bonds. Now, that wasn't my trade, but that's what the recessionary trade was. And my gosh, you have to be unwinding that trade in 2023 so far based on the economic outcomes. So, yeah, but and and. While I think stocks are still rich um, associated with the other two scenarios, pricing, um, those guys aren't selling because they're still, they're still in the game with decent equity performance. It's the short covering from the recession crew that are probably the principal drivers of what has been a, a modest rally in everything but the highest beta stuff like NASDAQ. Me, I mean, the S&P is actually down from December 21st, sorry, December, December 1st for two months now. Um, or flat but the rallies really happened in the most shorted stuff, mm-hmm. the most um, you know tax selling related stuff and the highest beta stuff and that's pretty natural when you see a funds flows from short equities to long equities that people grab beta.
0: Hey there sorry to interrupt announcement Blockworks is hosting an event called permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying... Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up. And if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code guidance 10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Bob, it can be tough because as interest rates rise, future cash flows are worth less. So that's a drag on the valuation of equities, as Andy rightly points out. However, the circumstances under which yields rise often are ones that are reflationary, uh, sometimes inflationary, but real reflationary where earnings should go up. So, um, you know, I was actually surprised just looking back to 1981 that the stock market, you you know, uh, the Volcker shock on the stock market wasn't as as, as bad as as I would have thought. Um, yeah. Bob, what do you make of uh, the recent stock market performance? How does your outlook on transitory Goldilocks shape your economic outlook on, you know, the short end of the yield curves, uh, the longer end bonds, um, and, and as well as stocks? Um, you know, and, and he said that he, he thinks that a lot of this is uh, that the stock market rally is uh, short covering. How much short covering do you think it is versus real money buying? You know, investors actually saying, hey, I want to be long this market because I like what I see.
1: Yeah, I I think when you looked at what was coming into the year, there was a lot of frankly, like big bets on immediate recession in one form or another. And you can look at that a bunch of different ways. You could you could look at like the Bank of America fund manager survey showed basically all time underweight stocks relative to all time overweight bonds. You could look at you know equity long short managers gross or net positioning all of those things indicated a very conservative and frankly recession oriented set of positioning coming in to the to the year and that was totally wrong um and uh and you know each day the folks who held those positions are getting pounded on those trades and we're you know we're starting to get particularly if you start to look at you know, equity managers who came in underweight, like, you know, they're in the in the ballpark of career risk, you know, uh, uh, circumstances where, you know, they held big short tech positions and, you know, underweight stocks and things like that. And so they've got to quickly catch up to the beta. And that's basically, I think, you know, in a bunch of different ways, what we're seeing is uh, unwind of that of that dynamic. And I think it's important to recognize that the unwind of that dynamic is not uh is not necessarily sensitive to the precise equity market levels or what's priced into the levels, right? That that's a very those folks are not sitting there going carefully saying, Well, I think the valuation isn't quite what it should be. They're getting caught on a bad trade, right, there were long bonds relative to stocks, they're getting caught, they're being squeezed, they're closing those positions, that's driving a move. I think it's important to recognize for those folks who are trading the markets that you have um, that that can that can persist independent of the fundamentals, which I think Andy laid out very, very well. Um, And if anything, what you should do is see that as an opportunity because those are non-fundamental driven flows driving prices away from what should be fair value. And so when you come to that, that's a great opportunity. You always want to find instances where that's happening because it creates opportunities, assuming that you can you know, remain liquid and diversified and not get carried away in those positions. And so I think that's basically what's going on. On the margin, transitory Goldilocks or Goldilocks in particular is better for stocks Fundamentally, than it is for bonds, but the general idea of you know stocks at 4100 being more expensive today than they were you know at the beginning of 2022, I think that's spot on, and it's a good reason why you know going all in you know YOLO stocks right now seems like an imprudent move. Um, But there you got cross-cutting forces. I think the much more interesting uh, and, and frankly like higher ratio trade in the market right now is those. 24s cuts that seem, you know, that are increasingly lower probability as we see the economy continue to um to to you know chug along and and generally get interest rates that are priced higher than they were before. And the fact that those moves that those haven't moved, the twenty fours cuts haven't really moved, means that that really could that's sort of leg two. Like leg one coming into the Fed meeting was frankly a pretty extreme expectation of Fed cuts in twenty three. That's mostly unwound, unwinded over that period. Now we turn to the twenty fours. That's where the opportunity is, and so opportunity to be short. To be clear. Um, and so, short price uh, yield expected to go up. Um and so I think that's really the interesting thing. and then i'll i'll t- I'll toss in just an extra one, which is that you know the Fed has transitioned from fifty to twenty five, or they say they've transitioned from fifty to twenty five you know, right now, what's priced in the market for the possibility that they might go 50 in the next three meetings is essentially zero, very low in terms of the pricing there, that they could go 50. And look, like you get a couple of reasonably sized employment prints, inflation uh, no longer is moderating in the way that they expected the seasonal adjustment, reset the level to a higher level than when they last made their decision. It's not clear to me that that is going to play out that way. And so, You know, this is maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit of a nuanced trade, but from a risk return perspective, you know, the betting at least that one fifty hits in the course of the next three meetings seems like a good risk return trade to me. um, And you're not paying that much for it.
2: Hey Bob, I've got a question for this about this other trade I have. So, in December first, I sold all. I sold risk parity yeah um so I was expecting tightening financial conditions um not making a bet on bonds stocks go you know what risk parity is but for the viewers not making a bet on stocks bonds um commodities gold anything just saying assets in general um are going to see tighter financial conditions and I was right for a month and I've been wrong then what was wrong in january and now here I am pretty much right having um, been it you know being able to invest my cash that I got from selling all those assets at a nice yield, and you know I'm up a little bit of money, but the reason why I did that trade was the idea of that in either a um higher for longer scenario or a uh recession that both of those, a recession would cause tightening financial conditions as people earned less, lost their jobs, needed to repay debt, and in a higher for longer situation, while not necessarily rapidly, at some point, the, the, um, the central bank would have to engineer tighter financial conditions. I'm sort of torn about, I mean, the, the trade doesn't do much, but I'm sort of torn. What do you think overall, given that idea?
1: Well, I, I, you know, I I was certainly sympathetic to that general view. And frankly, uh, I think in general have been surprised at how resilient financial asset prices have been relative to the magnitude of, you know, what should be a relatively significant tightening based upon the combination of, you know, duration issuance and the QT and the rise in interest rates and things like that. And I think that um, that speaks, what it does is it speaks to the overall environment where I think we don't really know how much of that essentially latent liquidity, which we know there's huge amounts of liquidity that was built up, right? That That is certain in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different pockets and things like that. I think we're having a hard time or at least I know I'm having a hard time knowing exactly what that balance is. Like is QT of, you know, 90, 95 enough to start to turn the liquidity dial down? Or is it that we have to contract it at 150, right? In order to really start to bite down on liquidity. And so in that balance, that balance looks, it looks more resilient than I would have expected. And so, you know, take that for what it is. I I think it's still an overall good trade, but, you know, we should also temper it with the fact in terms of confidence. I think there's a lot of ambiguity about just how much liquidity conditions are actually going to, going to translate. And, and I think, um, you know, that is, that uncertainty is, uh, that That happens all the time, which is why in the sense of like there's lots of times where you're uncertain about exactly what the sensitivities are and the betas and stuff like that, which is why you make a trade, but you don't go all in on one trade because you can you can easily get that thing wrong and and I think the uncertainties are higher today than than not, and so you know basically finding a bunch of trades that are tilted in your favor. Um, is the way to go here. I mean, it's always the way to go, but I think it's particularly valuable here where your confidence in any one view is just like not that high. So, like, you know, could you be short spoos and twos and a diversified portfolio of RPAR or something like short RPAR, and then maybe looking for
0: our
1: part of the ETF, which is just the risk parity ETF. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um uh i talk in etfs these days uh
0: <laughs> that's, how you it. Right. I mean, that's how the markets you know you can't be yeah you can't be talking about something that was important 20 years ago yeah
1: right right exactly, exactly. well i'm in the etf business now so that's i talk in etf speak um so uh right but Euro so, dollars
0: you know your you know your dollars in a month or two uh it will be we'll, we're living in a sofa world so you know you exactly. dollars uh, exactly exactly yeah. as a contract will we'll, you know not be traded yeah. Um, okay, very- so yeah, I just want to talk about financial conditions. Andy, you said you were you were short all assets. And by the way, Andy, when you say short all assets, do that include all commodities?
2: Well, it's risk parity. So it depends, everybody has their own version of it. Bridgewater has their version of it. RPAR is similar but has some inherent leverage and and um some um, rebalancing that is probably a bit more fast moving than other versions. AQR has a version. Um, I have my own version. It just happens to, the goal is to be balanced um, for changes in, finan- in, um, in um, uh, growth and inflation and be purely exposed to changes in uh, financial conditions or what the normally is considered uh, term premium or risk premium.
0: Right. Th- thanks for clarifying that. And so, yeah, you, you short all assets, it's, it's not just stocks. So you said, you know, short all assets, be, you, that was your uh, expression of the trade in that financial conditions would tighten. The only thing the Federal Reserve really controls is uh, the level of risk-free interest rates. Um, you know, they also have a huge force of liquidity, which affects other financial conditions. But uh, other financial conditions, I, you know, as of uh, a month ago, two, two months ago, defined it as the level of the stock market. Uh, how rich are our stocks or cheaper stocks, corporate credit spreads, uh, how much are you being paid above the risk free uh, rate is the dollar expensive relative to other uh, currencies that would tighten financial conditions and a quote, um, you know, objective measure of that, looking at the uh, the Chicago Fed or uh Financial Index or the uh, Goldman Sachs Financial Index, they eased since mid-December. As the stock market rose, cuts were being priced into the back half of 23, uh, You know, it, rate, rates were going down, stock market up, it eased. I mean, you, you don't have to you know, be a quant to tell that they eased. However, uh, Jay Powell, and I, you know, I really want to drive home this point because I'm, I'm you know, pretty sure you know, a, a journal, journalist asked him about, about financial conditions. He could have acknowledged that they had eased over the past month. And to be honest, I expected him to do that. He did not. He said that they had tightened over the past year, which which is accurate. But he didn't, you know, he did not address the easing in financial conditions, which I suppose and I think the Federal Reserve supposes is uh, impedes their ability to implement their two percent inflation um, uh, mandate. So I, th- I think financial conditions is is really important. So I just want to tie the knot between asset prices and financial conditions, and then liquidity. Both of you have talked a lot about liquidity, uh, a concept that you know many people in finance, myself included. No, but it's it's very hard to actually understand what it means. Um, so so the, the Fed's balance sheet uh, is is rolling off you know a lo- little bit less than you know ninety billion dollars and five billion dollars a month. One to think that's a liquidity drain. However, there's all sorts of different factors with you know the the Treasury general account uh, being drawn down, the reverse repo facility being drained. So I, I suppose I'll start with you, Andy. How would you assess the current uh, levels of liquidity? And is that higher or lower than you would suppose during a period of quantitative tightening and why?
2: Right. So uh, this is a very Bridgewater question. I'm glad we can um, hit on it. Um, so it's, there are many, many factors. But starting with the first thing you're saying, which is the financial conditions indexes as a measure, all the ones you described are circular in that they're asset price-based. So when stocks go up, financial conditions ease. Um, whenever the things that make the index move, financial conditions are perceived to have eased. But that's coincident. That's not a driver. Um, the uh, Jay Powell statement was, um, um, I think, very narrow and speaks to what um, he thinks is tight monetary conditions, which I do too for that matter. And it's something I pay a lot of attention to. It is a market-based rate, but what he was referring to was real interest rates across the curve are high and have stayed high even when other asset prices have rallied. So we haven't seen much um, falling of real interest rates during this period of time that he spoke about. So from that standpoint, from that narrow standpoint, financial conditions remain very tight. Now, the problem with the Fed, and this is where all these nuances come in, um, if you're measuring financial conditions by asset prices, and the Fed is managing the interest rate and having an impact impact on financial conditions by um, unwinding its um, holdings of of, um, SOMA holdings, and having those people who need to pay the Fed back issue into the market, um, you know, that's that's what they do. But there are a lot of other people. There's, for instance, I've noticed that in all of January, the indirect bids to the treasury bond auctions were highest in history. What is an indirect bid? And what does it mean? An indirect bid, is a bid that's submitted through a broker-dealer to the Treasury um, to do an auction. And the people who can't bid directly, even you and your mom and dad can buy Treasuries through Treasury Direct. Um, The people who can't tend to be foreigners. And so why were people in the rest of the world who who hate the fact that we've monetized our uh, sorry weaponized our um our um debt in the Russia battle um through sanctions why are they buying our treasuries well you'd have to go a little bit farther and say what's happening in those countries and so both Japan and China and to another um relevant party is uh the Swiss National Bank those three guys nah, they're pretty much currency manipulators they're not designated that way, but they play in the markets and the way they play is when their currencies are very very strong. we've seen the dollar very very weak for you know all of the last you know, I'll call it four months um, they uh the central bank sells uh prints their local currency, sells it to somebody for dollars and now has dollars dollars are not things you keep in your mattress. They're electronic dollars that have to be invested in something. And so what do they do? They show up at our auctions and they buy indirect. And that eases financial conditions because the guys who wanted to buy the treasuries, the non-central banks, the private sector, they can't get any. So they have to go out on the risk curve to get the assets they want. And that tends to push up other assets, including treasury assets. And so you have measured by the FCI, which again, is just coincident to these things, you have the markets rally. And so I thought that was an interesting factor. Um, You know, if you actually go through the the flows, you'll see probably two months from now when the um, TIC reports come out of the treasury that in fact, China didn't buy any treasuries. And hey, Andy, that you thought they bought treasuries. Well, they don't want our treasuries. They've been letting them run off. So what do they do with the dollars? Well, what do they want? They've wanted gold and oil. And so while all these auctions were occurring, while the PBOC was trying to keep a cap on their currency from appreciating, they bought do- They bought gold, they bought oil, and the sellers of gold and oil, maybe it's Saudi, maybe it's... Um, South Africa, maybe it's some people who just happen to have a lot of gold in their their reserves. They sold the gold and oil, and now they have dollars, and they'll show up at our auction. And so, listen, that, that flow is hard to track, but I'm just describing the way foreign participants can muck up the liquidity that you might think is so linear by looking at the Federal Reserve. And then- I'll say one last thing, which is the private sector can create liquidity whenever they want. If Jack Farley wants to go and buy some treasuries, he can go to the bank, say, hey, I want to do a secured loan, buying some treasuries on leverage, and the bank will go out, purchase the treasuries for them, hold those treasuries as collateral and lend them the money to do it right out of thin air. And so when does that happen? That happens when there's animal spirits. Was there animal spirits in the last few, in January? I think it'd be hard to think there wasn't, but the money could have come completely out of thin air. And so I think that's an important understanding. Also short covering for people who are short is a repayment of those loans. And that's a liquidity um, injection. So the private sector liquidity, the foreign sector liquidity, and the Federal Reserve and Treasury are all pieces of this liquidity, and their conditions and their greed, animal spirits, fear, drives flows.
0: So, Andy, in this circumstance where people, foreigners are bidding uh, via indirect uh, bids to the Treasury auctioned, are those uh, incentivized to do so because of the fall in the dollar? You say when foreign currencies appreciate, they can you know, sort of game the system. Is, is that what you're referring to?
2: I'm saying there isn't. So this is an important thing that Bob mentioned, which is sometimes people do things for non-economic reasons. Mm-hmm. And central banks are a great example of that. Um, and so if China wants to keep its currency from appreciating, it knows what to do. It sells <laughs> its currency. So that's their goal. That's their only goal was to sell the currency. Now they just happen to have dollars and those are hot potatoes that need to be invested. And so they don't care what price they pay or what price the what the yield is or anything. They just need to be invested. And so that those dollars flow into the world because China decided to sell yuan.
0: Right. And so uh you said something uh, the, the beginning of your, your comment uh, that Jay Powell referenced real interest rates, inflation adjusted interest rates, which in the future are based on inflation assumption, deflation break evens, but you can compare spot CPI. What was CPI for January relative to two federal funds? And I, I note that that level is highly dependent on if inflation is, is rising or falling uh, in the Goldman Sachs financial conditions index, or all these reflexive models that you refer to Andy. Um, uh, inflation is an indirect, you know, it, it, it's kind of the puppet master because inflation is high, finan- you know, stocks will likely go down. However, it's not directly there, right? But, but when, you know, I feel like this new financial conditions index that, that, that Powell uh, referenced, and I, I saw Nick Timmero's tweet, you know, that Powell was using something that Brainerd said, that sort of uh, alternative model, if inflation falls, financial conditions sort of must be, you know, net-net uh, easing. Um, So
2: so let me stop you there. Yeah. A lot of people that subtract the inflation print and particularly, shockingly, the year over year inflation print from nominal interest rates to determine what real interest rates are. And that is utter nonsense and not what the Fed does. Don't ever do that. What the Fed does is look at the price of tips and that's the real yield. They don't use that nonsense. They never have. Bob, do you agree?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love I love it. Andy getting hot on uh on on how to think about real interest rates. I I I agree and I, I would probably take it a step further, which is many people will uh and I've I've seen this all over financial Twitter. They say, well, because inflation's coming down uh or has come down and interest rates remain stable, that is uh, an effective tightening. And I think it's really important to recognize that um, that is not necessarily an effective tightening. And the reason why that is, is because you have to think about who earns what money and who pays what debts associated with those two pieces to see whether or not it is actually an effective tightening or not. So for instance, from a household's perspective... Right. If you think about that dynamic, if their wage growth remains constant and inflation goes down, that is stimulative to the economy. Right. Very important to recognize falling inflation without falling wages is good for the economy because it stimulates, it supports real incomes, which supports real spending. Right. Which is different from, say, a corporation who may be having a floater, although that's, you know, that's less of a deal now, but it, it's still an issue. A corporation might sit there with a floater and they're essentially earning CPI, right? Because they get nominal revenues paying out nominal debt service, where the picture is a little different. But probably, most likely, the big picture story of, for the economy is that what would look like rising a rising real short rate right now, I think is net stimulative to the economy. And that's a, that's pretty, you know, that's a lot of people have that backwards uh, out there. And I think it's actually a pretty important thing when we think about the durability of this rally or the durability of the economy right now is, you know, inflation has come down a lot, like, you know, gas prices or whatever have come down a lot. They were $5 to $3, maybe they tick up or whatever. But like, when you look at that picture, like households are actually at a quite a bit better position today than they were a year ago when inflation was rising rapidly relative to their wages. Now we're seeing a transition to where their wages, wage growth, which is sticky, right? Wage growth is a slow moving process and inflation is still not at Fed target, but it has, it's rising at a slower pace than it was before, which means that they have essentially more inflation adjusted you know, income in their pocket, which will support spending, which is lengthening the duration of this cycle. So, long story short, we've beaten the hell out of uh, how to think about the real short rate. Um, and, uh, but you know, that I think is is both of those things are both what Andy said, and and, and um, this idea of what you earn versus what you what you pay and how you spend um, are important considerations when you're putting together the pieces of what's the interest rate, what's the inflation rate. And what's the likely impact of that on the real economy?
0: Right. Yeah. So, Andy, I, you, I, I agree with you. You're totally right. There's a duration mismatch. And I, and I didn't know that. There's a duration mismatch between what was inflation over the past 12 months uh, and what is the current uh, rate now. Two-year tips yields had went down from November uh, to, to January.
2: It may or may not be restrictive. I'm not saying Powell's right to say the, the economy is in a restricted um, um, situation at this stage based on real rates. I'm saying that he's being very narrow when he talks about financial conditions and that's not a problem. you just have to know what he's talking about so you don't spend a lot of time yelling at the at the moon about how FCI has has actually eased a lot. You could at least look at the thing he said and i'm I'm not making any more judgment than that. And also know that the FCI is not predictive. It is literally the market's price that drives it. Now, you can actually come up with some smart ways of of determining whether financial conditions are likely to tighten or ease. Um, It requires quite a bit of work. And I just gave you a couple of the places around the globe that you might want to think about in terms of what their influence on financial conditions are. People want to just look at it as some um, very linear formula of the Fed's balance sheet. And that's complete garbage. Now it's, 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 it's one input, Mm -hmm. but it's not the picture. The picture requires a tremendous amount of work. And in particular, the way the private sector works.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think, I think one of the things that, um, I totally agree with you, Andy, that that the financial conditions index is not in is, there's nothing predictive for asset prices. It is essentially asset prices. The thing that it is predictive for is it's typically predictive for economic conditions. That's an important consideration, right? But economic condi- conditions are not asset prices. And so I think what you see here is that, those two things are different because asset prices and asset returns are how economic conditions transpire relative to what's priced in, right? And so that that is what you have to think about when you're trading financial assets. And so I think there is a, an important reality that those FCI measures are noting, which is that financial conditions were quite elevated. They were quite tight, you know, six months ago that created probably a a bit of the economic slowing moderation that we saw. Now we've had economic conditions improve. We're likely to see a bit of economic acceleration, um, which we might be seeing a bit of the science of like not as extreme as what the data is suggesting because of the seasonality, but like the idea that we could have like a reasonable, you know, reasonably decent growth in Q1 and Q2. That makes sense to me as a function of the fact that the stock market's up 20% and, you know, um, and, and that overall – and that that interest rates are down relative to where they were at peak and things like that on the long end. Like that all makes sense to me that mortgage rates are down and stuff like that. And so like those two things are, are – just think about them differently. Like financial conditions are an input to macroeconomic and economic outcomes, which is – and future economic outcomes, which is an input – To thinking about what's likely to transpire versus what's priced in, and that's kind of what you you know that's the sequence of events, not the other way around. Exactly.
0: I want to explore a possibility that the uh, factors that are a drain on liquidity and therefore tightening financial conditions are here for a long time, whereas the easing of financial conditions that we've seen, you know, the Andy, the the cross border flows that you said, it's, it's a little over my head, but. Uh, you know that that might be transitory, you know, because the you know the Bank of Japan rates are so low, and 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 you know the Fed is higher. That might not be here, but you know, mortgage rates—they're not going back to two percent. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet is is going to continue to decline, so you know the spread between you know mortgage-backed securities over, over treasuries uh, likely will stay high. It may decline, but it will stay high. Rates are going up, and rates will uh, uh, stay high. You know, Andy, you, you made the point that. I can buy treasuries, but by borrowing money. But if I, if I let's say was a you know, hedge fund, I used to be able to borrow at zero. Now I can borrow at four percent, four and a half percent. And I'm, I would be buying four and a half at borrowing at four and a half percent to buy securities that are yielding, you know, three and a half percent if I'm a ten-year treasury. So is the nature of the bond market the fact that rates have gone up so high and the fact that they're higher than forward rates uh, in, in the future? So I we had an inverted yield curve. Is that just you know kind of a a a systemic drag on liquidity that may outlast these temporary influxes of, of liquidity. Uh, Andy, let's we'll start with you and then Bob.
2: Sure. I mean, again, so complicated, yeah. the broad picture of liquidity. Um, I'll just talk about one thing I find interesting right now, which is the TGA spend down, um, which we know is going to go down because the fed's going to run out of the, the government's going to exhaust its extraordinary measures soon um, if they haven't already and continue to issue duration but really curtail bills until the um debt ceiling is resolved and that might be dramatic but along the way the way they pay their bills is spending out of the treasury general account which you know injects money without issuance into the financial system so this is one of those things who does who gets the money and what do they do with it so the first stop for the money is it gets deposited and so banks have more deposits than they used to. Now they get reserves because of the circularity of the plumbing, which we won't go into, but they have deposits and um, those deposits are in the name of their clients, but they can, um, they can lever those deposits um, because they now have balance sheet capacity. Um, so in addition, the depositor gets the money. And the depositor may withdraw it. Now, his withdrawal from a bank and then spending doesn't take the money out of the system. It is paid to somebody who puts it back into as a deposit. So the deposits just stay where they are, and that's sort of an injection. And if all those depositors decided to buy long-term treasuries, well, that would be stimulative um, or spooze or meme stocks or whatever they decide to buy. Um, Chances are, given who gets the money, which is, um, if you look at the um, U.S. uh, budget, um, most of the money goes to Medicare, uh, Social Security, um, and other entitlements first, um, military salaries, um, and then ultimately some for interest broadly. But most of the money goes for what is really what it's needed for, which is immediate consumption. And then... Trans moves through the market, not touching any financial asset, can stays as deposits, but the deposits shift from the people that got the money to the people who that sell stuff, so corporations and then ultimately those corporations may invest in a broad asset portfolio, but that TGA spend down results in immediate leverable money by banks, so they could use it to finance assets or um, ultimately, um, any along the path, ultimately to the end saver, but that's a long process. So now the reason I mentioned that is because of what you just said, here I am a bank and I could, um, give that money, um, to the Fe- to back to the Fed who will pay me, uh, IOER, which is interest on excess reserves. Yeah. Um, I hate acronyms, um, <laughs> That's actually um, a little bit, I think it's still a premium to Fed funds at the moment. It might not be, but it's very close to Fed funds. So a lot, four and a half, four and three quarters percent. (sighs) Or they can buy a 10-year bond at three and a half percent. Why why would they do that? Back in the day when the yield curve was was inverted, sorry, positively sloped, they could, that that IOER rate was zero, so why bother with that when I can buy duration that's paying me 2%. And that didn't require animal spirits so much. It was just, hey, that seems like easy money. What now is the case is that you really have to have an animal spirits view that you're going to get in um, asset appreciation in order to pay the negative carry that banks would have to pay. So... I keep track of their ownership of securities. You have to do a lot of digging to find any understanding of their derivatives portfolio. But to understand what banks are doing with duration and their duration exposure can give you a sense on whether TGA spend down, that's right in front of us, a couple of months now, it'll be just spend down, will ultimately be stimulative to asset prices or not. And so uh, my view is a lot less stimulative than normal in a because of the inverted yield curve.
0: Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com/sign-up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code Guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. What do you think, uh, Bob? And then, yeah, you just have a comment that you know a potential bull case, the, the most bullish case for equities, is a, you know the fact that the the government is running out of money. <laughs>
1: well I think you know that i I think that's I share uh Andy's view that that um looking at that one line is not a good reflection of overall liquidity um uh and that you know it's gotten a lot of tension because there's been a lot there there's been like some relationship on a level basis but when you do the real, uh, the real work to see whether it it's even, you know coincident or leading. It, it doesn't. It's not particularly compelling. I think the, the basic re- that reason why that is is because look the big the, the big picture is that there's there's plenty of liquidity in the system and balance sheet. If you want to borrow to buy assets, you can, right? No no one's running into any constraints anywhere. And that um, that mostly to the extent that people are not buying assets or increasing their leverage, it's a function of their preference for assets relative to cash. And there's good reasons why you would think that you might want to hold more cash relative to assets. Um, the sort of very direct pricing reason that Andy highlights is that the yield, you know, an inverted yield curve for those who book their profit and losses, uh, you know, basically on a, on a accrual basis is, is it's a bad deal on that basis. Um, uh, you know, and if you want to be buying, you know, if you, if you move from cash to assets, you have to believe that those assets are going to outperform cash at a time when there's already huge, you know, essentially cuts priced into the, into the bond market. And so, you know, what I'd mostly say is um, we have plenty of liquidity. I think that's a very – that's actually an important consideration, and it's very different, very, very different from what we saw in 2008. In 2008, you have to understand that you could have been a bulletproof borrower and collateralized multiple times or whatever, and they and you still couldn't get the money. And so that's a very – that's important dynamic because it means – that the pressure or any acute squeeze to start to sell assets or draw down, you know, deleverage is not really there. So there's the ability to releverage. And so then the question is: given that ability basically fully to releverage, do you want to releverage? What do the asset prices look like relative to cash? How does how does that trade-off look? And how are you uh, you know, how can you evolve that that trade-off? And I think what you see is that. Um, you know, in general, sophisticated folks are looking at that trade-off and they're saying assets aren't a great deal. Cash looks pretty good. Cash is, you know, yielding, a, you know, providing a reasonable yield. And one of the important things to always remember about cash is that cash has unpriced option value, which rarely is discussed, but is critical to think about because to the extent that you're in cash, uh, you know, you're not you you have the opportunity in the future to choose whatever assets you want. Of course, you forego appreciation, but I think there is like that that choice value when there's high uncertainty that you might price even better than the yield that you're getting on cash. You're not paying for that choice value by it, you know, by cash having a low yield. And so you put that all together, and I think in general, people just you know, to the extent that assets are, are going down, or to be clear, to the extent that they're going up, it's because people want assets or don't want assets. And that's where you have to really get to the animal spirits, the fundamentals, looking at the pricing, looking at how people are understanding the real economy and the dynamics there relative to the pricing in order to see whether or not these things are going to play out. Just that line on the chart, it's not going to help you.
0: Totally agree. Uh, Bob, earlier you referenced. Uh, opportunities and and trades. So I'd, yeah, I'd love for you to discuss, you know, trades that uh, look like attractive risk reward to you. I think you mentioned fading the, the rate cuts in 2024, which uh, sounds like Andy is also eyeing. And yeah, so what, what you in particular think, as well as, you know, I, I know that uh, you know, one, or, one or more of your ETFs like tracks hedge fund strategies. Like what do you think are the good trades? And then what are the hedge funds think are the good trades?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that, um that when we look at the the hedge fund community right now, that that we see is that you know this is a, a time of high uncertainty, uh, and in a time of high uncertainty, um, it pays to be conservative. Um, and so, I think the the biggest overwhelming thing I'd say, both what I what I believe, but also when you look at these sophisticated asset managers is that it's not a time to get over your skis on one particular path or the other. Like, I like how Andy, I mean, frankly has been like navigating the last few months saying, I don't know if it's going to be a hard landing. I don't know if it's going to be higher for longer. There's a lot of ambiguity there, but let me, but you know, the odds of those two outcomes are being underpriced relative to the odds of soft landing. And let me make a bet in that direction, a bet, both the two bets that kind of on the surface look like why are you betting against yourself but both have a positive expected value and so finding a bunch of trades and not getting overweight on one outcome or another I think is is very important so that's you know when i think about the portfolio to build here um or what i'm seeing with the you know with with the with the hedge fund community is that they're very conservative in general in terms of their leverage and then also You know, not overweight one direction or the other. So a little bit of equity risk, a little bit of top of the stack credit risk, tilt towards you know value sectors relative to growth sectors, um, a little bit of bond risk because you could be wrong um, on that trade, and so you sort of put all that together, and what you see is a portfolio that is conservative. But positioned well for a variety of different outcomes, and certainly one that's not going to get hammered in uh, in in many of those different outcomes. Now, what that portfolio has done is underperformed, you know, high beta stocks, and you know that for one month or six weeks or something like that. It's true, but you know, you could. It, it's important not to get caught up in that when. You know, pay, making a big bet on high beta stocks is really not, um, you know, it's it's a very concentrated position, a very concentrated view on what's likely to transpire at a time when there's significant uncertainty.
0: Hmm. So, um, no, I go, Bob. My, my question for you would be, yeah, your your thesis on the soft landing, uh, as well as your highest conviction trade to express. Uh, uh, that view. But so that, that question, I want to uh, uh, direct to to Andy first.
2: My highest conviction of the things I have on? Yes. Gosh, I just put on some G- um, USD JPY at 130.82, which I'm really loving right now. And I think that actually has um, an unpriced hire for longer that is, um, you know, that's playing out as the hire for longer thesis Plays out, but um, that's what I'm loving right now. But twos and spoos is paying me, and I think it has a lot more to go if we start getting that um, back half of uh, the the twos spreads and you know the 2023 cuts start to come out. Um, I actually still like the short asset portfolio, but it represents it's very unlevered and sort of boring. So. It's like cash, but even a little bit better than cash in my view.
0: Right. but uh, So short twos and spoo- spoo's is similar to short everything, right?
2: No, not really. Short twos and spoo's is very focused on twos pricing in a recession and equities not. Mm. Okay. At price levels that I think can make money if, if we stay um, – Implying no landing is implying in the air. So this thing has lost it for me. While the outcome remains uncertain for which way the plane is going to go, I think twos and spoos can make money. Um, both can make money because they're both mispriced. Equities is a little rich, and twos and spoos and twos are a little rich. And so just holding those, I like, even if one of the outcomes doesn't show up. But I can't see a lot of downside if any of the outcomes show up. And so I really like that trade. That said, it has made a ton very quickly. So, you know, for me to, I'm not taking profits on it, but for me to add more, I'd have to have it really come back in my face quite a bit. Right. What about you, Bob? Highest conviction trades?
1: You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for those twenty. 24s to get priced out, those 24 cuts to get priced out uh, in in the market. And so that, you know, that looks like the most interesting trade. But like what I'd say is um, uh, the, the, the I'd say the, the biggest conviction is recognizing the uncertainty of the dynamics and trying, frankly, to put together a bunch of different trades that all kind of look in your favor you know, I, I, I like uh, Andy's twos and spoos trade, but you know, you'd wanna pair that with other opportunities that maybe are a little make sure you're you're adding some other things like, you know, maybe commodities, they look a little cheap relative to, you know, industrial commodities and oil looks a little cheap. I kind of like that paired with those other trades. Like you sort of put that all together. That that's kind of you wanna um, you wanna put yourself in a position. I also like Stocks versus bonds, while the Fed remains what appears to be a little bit behind the curve um, uh, on that trade, long end bonds, not short end. And so you kind of, you know, those are all kind of little trades that are kind of against the over-tightening trade that I think are all pretty good trades and tilted in your favor. Um, but recognizing that when I say that, what you're doing is you're betting a bunch of things you know, in any one particular path or one one particular outcome, um, not all of those will make money. Um, but you know, probabilistically, you'll make a little bit more on on some relative to the others on the different paths that you're seeing. And so that's you know, that is a you know a a a highly diversified set of marginally beneficial positions is um, you know doesn't have the the clickbait or excitement of you know going all in on recession or all in on the big flip or whatever that that thing is, um, but you know is the right way to manage money. So uh,
2: yeah, let me uh, let me say um, my risk management system of never having. Any total portfolio that can cost more than 10% as a worst case drawdown, absolutely full stop, not with stops, but literally by structure, um, means that even while I am not particularly diversified, um, I have very little risk. And so what I'm trying to do is chop 10% Ten percent a year with a ten percent vol generate a one sharp ratio in an undiversified in a diversified, uncorrelated way to what I think the you know the portfolio that most should have, which is a um, active, long only portfolio that does some um, going to cash and some conservative um, reweightings um, to deal with the environment we're now in. And that's the way I manage money, um, but Alpha is the one that seems to click uh, get the clicks, and so I'm only talking about three or four trades. Hmm,
0: right. Well, thank you both. It's been it, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I feel like I definitely listen to this interview twice and 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 learn a lot more. Um, so people uh, who are, who are watching the handles on on screen uh, at Bob E Unlimited and uh, for you Bob and at Dam Spring for you Andy. They are. Uh, how you can uh, find uh, you guys on Twitter. Uh, my final question is because this is a soft landing uh, discussion. Could we? Sounds like both of you agree that a hard landing on an, you know next two or three years is the most likely scenario. Um, so, Andy, your categorization that you know Bob doesn't believe in the soft landing or, or in in the long term, I think uh, Bob perhaps you would agree or disagree, is is accurate. But let's just contain this because time horizons investing are incredibly important to the end of the year, December uh, 31st, 2023, how do you think you will characterize the economy and financial markets uh, b- between now and, and and then? Soft landing, higher for longer, no landing, hard landing. Uh, Andy, we'll start with you and Bob, I'll give you a final word.
2: Still won't know. I don't know now, I still won't know. It'll still be the coin flip I described. I wanna say that that hard landing that you're talking about Depends on no flinch. If we're right on higher for longer, we're not going to have a recession if he flinches and allows inflation to stay higher for longer. So don't count on it being anytime soon. It could be, but it depends on how policymakers act on whether it's late 23, early 24, mid 24, or Maybe not at all for a while,
1: thank you, Bob. um I think what i'd what I'd say is that it's likely to be more boring than the vast majority of people who are out there <laughs> would like you to believe. you know the most likely outcome is kind of plodding along at moderate growth and you know higher than desirable inflation. And that, you know, slowly but surely the Fed responds to that. And we kind of look back at this year and see that it's kind of been boring, certainly relative to 22. Um, that would be very, that would be very normal. You know, on the margin, my inclination is higher for longer, and you know, eventually the Fed doing enough. Um, but uh the allure of soft landing and the allure of uh, of pausing a recession, uh, if it starts to emerge, as as Andy notes, is is there for every central banker, go back and study Volcker and see how he did this. And he was captured by the allure of soft landing and supporting growth, even throughout being the greatest inflation fighter of history. And so um, odds are that's what it that's what it looks like, uh, rather than uh, any sort of big bang outcome one way or the other.
0: We'll we'll leave it there. Bob, Andy, thanks so much. And thank you everyone for watching. Thank you so much. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully can be viewed on YouTube at blockworks macro or heard as a podcast on Apple podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple podcast. If you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again, and be well.